Jedi Council is a podcast for entertainment and informational purposes only. It should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Hey folks, welcome back to the next episode of the Jedi Council podcast. We like to explore mental health and language and your favorite fictional characters. Uh, This is your Jedi Council graduate student co-host, Brandon Saxton. And Katie Gordon, your associate professor (laughs) co-host. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm good. I'm really interested in today's topic, which is part of why I suggested it. (laughs) So I guess that's not that surprising. I'm interested in the topic I suggested. But um, my father, who I've mentioned a few times before because he is a Meriton family therapist, but he also had... um, has a background, his bachelor's was in speech and hearing sciences, and so I would hear things growing up related to language that he would comment on, and I think that he instilled in me a bit of an appreciation for it, and he still remains interested and kind of keeps up with the research, even though his main practice is marriage and family therapy, and he refers out for anything related to speech, but as recently as the last time I visited him, we were talking about um, differences in language production and vocabulary throughout the developmental span and things like that. And I always find it fascinating. So I'm really excited that I have a colleague and friend right here in our department who has expertise in this. And Aaron Conwell, who I'll introduce more in just a moment, but I'll give away the name, uh, did a Nerd Night talk, which we've done before. And basically, it's a it's a cool local event. They have them in cities throughout the world, oh, I believe. Tons of them, yeah. Mm-hmm. Where they're, the idea is that they're brief talks, ten to twenty minutes, about interesting subject matter while drinking beer. Yeah. Right. Their thing is Discovery Channel, but with beer or something like that. And I wasn't able to attend Aaron's talk, but I heard so many interesting things about it related to language and science fiction, specifically related to Star Trek, Star Wars, and things like that that I thought it would be a fun episode for Jedi Council. So that is a long-winded answer to say I'm super excited about today's episode. How are you? Oh, I'm good. <laughs> Not quite as long as an answer. But you you captured all of my feelings, too. So thank you for that. No, <laughs> I'm also welcome. super excited today. And uh, it's been fun to get back into having some guests. We had a really quick, like, burst of guests, and then uh, for a while no one wanted to come talk to us. Oh, no, maybe we just we didn't have any ideas. <laughs> and now uh, we're back to having a few guests come back. So, yeah, it's been really enjoyable. And it's fun because... Um, folks get to hear about things that maybe we don't know a ton about. I admittedly don't know that much about language, so it'll be fun to uh, give a new topic and a new perspective to our listeners. That's right. So without further ado, because Erin has been sitting patiently <laughs> as we talk about her a few inches away from us, let's <laughs> notice I pulled up her curriculum video <laughs> to do an introduction. But actually, I think, why don't we just start out by asking you to introduce yourself, your background, and how you got into language research. Sure. Uh, I'm really, I'm excited to be here. I think uh, a lot of the issues that get raised with regard to language when you're talking about science fiction or about fantasy um, become very interesting uh, because it gives you a sense sometimes of how uh, people who aren't psycholinguists or linguists think about the way language works and how language affects what we do. Um, my educational background is that I did my undergraduate work at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, um, where I got my bachelor's degree in 
brain and cognitive science. And from there, I went to Brown University, where I got my PhD in cognitive and linguistic science. Um, and my research uh, in graduate school and as an undergraduate um, was about how language develops, first language develops in young children. Um, and then from Brown, I went on to do a postdoc in the Department of Psychology at Harvard, uh, where I was still, again, working with um, issues related to language development, but my population there was with adults. And uh, then I came to NDSU uh, to join the faculty here in psychology. And I continue to work both on uh, child language development and on adult language processing. Thank you for that great introduction and giving an overview. So it sounds like part of what really inspired you to study language is how it impacts our thinking. Uh, not quite, actually. Mm. Um, I think... There are a lot of things about how language might impact our thinking and be related to uh, thought and other cognitive processes that is it's all terribly interesting, but I sort of didn't run into that until relatively late in my oh. uh, research career. I got into language um, because sort of around the block. Uh, actually, like your dad, I was in some ways first introduced to it in a therapeutic context in high school. Um, I volunteered at a preschool that provided therapy services for children with disabilities. And there I was assigned in my volunteer position to assist their speech therapist. And so I was sort of watching all of these sessions and disinfecting a lot of things because that is something you do at the end of every speech therapy session because <laughs> things are in people's mouths. So, uh, and these were very small children. So I spent a lot of time disinfecting, which is important, and, and watching the, the speech therapy sessions. And uh, I remember at the end of it, the therapist said to me, like, oh, do you think you want to go into speech? And I said, well, you know, I've been watching all these different ways that language development can go wrong, right? And what I want to know now is how does it ever go right? You know, when, when you see how many ways a system can break down, and then you realize that in the majority of children, it proceeds without intervention, really. Um, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> and understanding the mechanisms underlying that were pretty exciting to me. Um, I actually thought I was going to be a mathematician, though. Uh, and then I found out what mathematicians do all day, and I decided I didn't want to be a mathematician. <laughs> so uh, language is nice because it is a formal system. Uh, in linguistic research, it, you use a very formal system for talking about Things like the structure of sentences, the structure of words, um, the relationships between words and meanings. Um, and it's very mathematical in that sense, except then it also intersects with people. And so it's a little more interesting than pure abstract mathematics. That's really cool and also brings me to a question. Um, since we like to talk about how accurate fictional depictions are, have you seen Goodwill Hunting? I have seen Goodwill Hunting. So very... Briefly, because I know we have a lot to talk about here. Um, how accurate is the math depicted in that film? Uh, I don't know enough math to tell you how okay. accurate the math is. Uh, but I, I do, I can tell you, um, you know, that took place at MIT, uh, a lot of the action there. And uh, I did my undergrad work at MIT. I lived in Boston for almost 12 years. So I'm very familiar with MIT and surrounds. Uh, and the 
um, the joke when we when I arrived at MIT, which was just after Goodwill Hunting came out, um, was that uh, no math professor's office looked anything like that. Uh, you know, it, it's all very like. Um, polished wood mm-hmm. and shiny surfaces sure. and uh, the actual office of a math professor at MIT is you know uh, plywood and cinder block bookshelves <laughs> piled and piled with papers and there's no place to sit because there's papers everywhere and really the only thing that was realistic at least at the time this may have changed is that the professor in question was probably covered with chalk from <laughs> the chalkboard he or she had been working at so that was uh we were all a little disappointed. It wasn't quite as fancy and uh, sort of erudite looking. It was a much grungier uh, kind of uh, image than what you'd see in the movie. Well, it is disappointing to hear that. I had such a romantic notion of it, but it's good to be accurate. <laughs> and speak since we're talking about language, what do you think about the Boston dialects in Goodwill Hunting? In Goodwill Hunting, mm-hmm. uh, well, so the, the thing about Goodwill Hunting is that many, many of the actors involved were local, mm-hmm. right? So uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck grew up in Cambridge, and they heard that dialect growing up. Uh, so they're pretty uh, authentic in their productions, though neither of them uses that accent in their own speech most of the time. Um, and similarly, a lot of the extras were cast from the local area, those kinds of things. So uh, it was a pretty good representation of um, that sort of southern New England dialect. Uh, Boston is very dialect diverse, um, and uh, New England in general, especially compared to uh, you know the North the North Plains, which are somewhat depopulated. So uh, you know, there's there's sort of one accent most people think of when they think of the North Plains, but in in Boston, people will be able to tell. Or in New England in general, you know, the difference between Boston and Providence, for example, um, which is, if you're used to it, very distinct. Uh, you can definitely tell Boston from Providence in a lot of ways. But, um, you know, someone who has just moved there, it all sounded the same to me. I couldn't understand a lot because <laughs> uh, I moved there from elsewhere. But once you get used to it, yeah, it's uh, it sounds like home to me now when I'm flying in and I hear it in the, um, in the airport or that kind of thing. It's like, oh. Okay, I'm here. That's it's the fact that you say that it very. I'm very much relate to that. um, Having grown up in South Florida and and hearing people from diverse places that have moved to South Florida and hearing Spanish and Creole and other things like that. But you're right. There is this kind of. I'm not even kind of conscious of missing that. And then when I get back, I'm like, oh yeah, this is so familiar to me. This is what I heard for so many years. And so it is, it's interesting how language can have that meaning to us, even in terms of hearing other people speak in particular ways. Well, thanks for the the Goodwill Hunting tangent. This is, (laughs) you know, this is, um, I've had discussions with Aaron about this type of stuff before, and I just find it incredibly fascinating, especially the idea that the density of a population can affect how different dialects are throughout regions and, and throughout the area. So so that's really cool. Uh, I want oh, It's sorry, kind of fun mm-hmm. to hear you both talk about that because here in Fargo, uh, I'm only 100 miles from my own hometown. So that's being coming back to that is not something I can relate to. So that's really interesting to hear about. Yeah. And is it how so from Fargo, it sounds like in the Northern Plains, it's it's kind of, is it a wider swath of shared similar 
dialect. Uh, one of the things that people look at, and you can find these um, these maps online. Uh, there's been some really beautiful work by sociolinguists, and I should say at the outset, if there are sociolinguists listening, I am not a sociolinguist, and I apologize in advance for any violence I might do to sociolinguists. <laughs> uh, I, I only know it somewhat tangentially, though I do think it's it's some really cool work. Um, you can find these maps, basically, of things like how vowels are produced um, in different parts of the English-speaking world, right? And uh, vowel spaces in particular can be really drastically different, um, even in some cases within a relatively small uh, geographic range. Um, and even if you just think of the United States, you know, the vowels of a person from North Dakota mm -hmm. are going to sound really different from the vowels of a person from New England and the vowels of a person from Texas, right? So we have this uh, really great diversity in terms of uh, the way vowels are produced. And you can go and you can find those maps and see like, oh, you know, this is the, the sort of vowel pattern we see through the North Midwest, and it's different along these vowels compared to, say, the South Midwest or Chicago or um, those kinds of things. Big urban areas will often have a more specific uh, pattern than some sort of broader, more depopulated. Well, we'll have to link to some of yeah. that because I, I, I'd like to look at that. I think that's really cool. So moving from being in Boston and Providence, and moving to Fargo, how has that affected your research, or has it affected your research? Uh, well, one of the one of the things that uh, has been affected, at least a little bit, has to do with asking about language background. I mean, like Brandon said, he's only a hundred miles from mm -hmm. his hometown, and a lot of our undergraduates here are from the region. Um, and so, when I would do uh, when I do recording studies here, one of the things we ask about, because I measure vowels, um, when I have people record words and then I go in and measure things about them, I measure the vowels. Uh, and if I were recording somewhere where people were more likely to have come from somewhere else, uh, I would have to be pretty careful about making sure I get the history of where they've lived um, so that I know I'm measuring comparable vowels, right? Um, Whereas here, that's not so much a challenge. I still do collect those data because we do have some students from other places. But uh, most of the time I just have them list, you know, where have you lived and what languages did you hear when you lived there? And a lot of them write down, you know, 0 to 18, Lisbon, North Dakota, 18 to 21, Fargo, North Dakota, and that's, you know, the whole space. So uh, I... It was in some ways a relief. I didn't yeah. have to control as much uh, for things like dialect background when I came here, uh, which I didn't anticipate, but I started handing out these surveys and thinking, oh, well, this is great. I don't have to do any <laughs> transformations or anything. Yeah, that is a handy scientific <laughs> one. You know, there are so many variables involved. It's nice when you can reduce some of yeah. the variation in at least one of them. What are the main questions that you're answering with your research right now? Uh, right now, my research is focused on two issues. Uh, one of those issues has to do with what linguists call argument structure, which has nothing to do with the structure of arguments, which is what someone who is not a linguist might think. Uh, it rather has to do with the relationship between verbs and the structure of a sentence. And I am very interested in how children learn the relationship between verbs and the structure of a sentence. How they learn that a verb like put 
requires both an object that is put and a place that it is put, so both an object and a location, whereas a verb like sleep, while you can talk about location, it's not really a verb that has a direct object. It can't have that kind of a relationship with another word. Um, and there are various approaches to how uh, people might learn those regularities that exist. Some of them appeal to meaning, some of them appeal to relative frequency, uh, some of them appeal to both. And so I am doing some research right now that manipulates some of those factors and looks at how it affects children's learning of the relationship between verbs and nouns, uh, either using regularities we know exist in natural language or in English, to be very specific, or by sort of developing our own miniature languages and testing in that. The other thing that I have been working on is how children and adults uh, understand words that have more than one meaning. Uh, a lot of theories of lexical access, uh, by which I mean word access, uh, and uh, learning basically operate on the assumption that you've got a one-to-one -one mapping between words and their meanings, and it's pretty clear that that's not true. Uh, and so I have been looking at what prompts a learner to decide that a word that they know already might have a completely unrelated meaning, uh, and also looking at what causes an adult to decide on which meaning of a word with multiple meanings they should be uh, interpreting. As you talk about this, I think that I take for granted how complex language is and how many nuances there are, and that you're right, it is, it's remarkable that kids can figure this stuff out and that adults can figure this stuff out. It just, it, it's fascinating. And so the research methods, so sometimes you said you'll take words that are familiar and look at and, and try to identify how people are figuring out, the, detecting the meaning of it. And, and other times you'll have made up words so you can, is, is the idea so that everyone has the same history, which is no history of experience with those words. Exactly. It's, it's a way of controlling with prior, uh, controlling for prior experience. Um, because, you know, so much of, of what we know about language is implicit, right? We, we were not seated with a textbook at the age of nine months and told, okay, here are how words interact with each other, go, right? Uh, it's something we figured out um, probably by a combination of some innate predisposition to do so and then our experience with the world. And that means that we need, if we, if we want to ask certain kinds of questions, we need to be very careful about prior experience. And it is completely impossible to control for a child or an adult's prior experience with a word, uh, unless we invent it. And if we invent it, then we have total control over it. So the use of uh, made up words, or in some cases, actually making up an entire small language uh, is, is pretty popular for controlling for that role of prior experience. So this question might be a little bit out there, but I know about you that with that introduction, I know you <laughs> can't wait to hear. I know that you have a lot of experience doing improv and, and exercises like that. Am I, are there exercises that involve making up words or things that you find you can bring to your research or are those totally distinct areas of your life? Those are pretty distinct areas okay. of my life. <laughs> they, they really are. Um, I, the, the improv stuff, um, I, I actually haven't done improv 
for an audience in a really long time. Except uh, for our graduate students, mm-hmm. right, during a... Right, we did do a <laughs> workshop. That was a lot of fun. Yes, it was. Um, and uh, I, I, do, uh, I do enjoy uh, improv, both watching it and, and participating in it. Um, but, you know, those are really two different things. Uh, you know, w- with improv, it's whatever happens is what has to go, right? You have to go with what is happening around mm-hmm. you. And in these cases of things like making up words, making up language, we want to be very careful that we're controlling for a wide range of features um, and, you know, that things are structurally sensible and, and all of that. So it's a much more um, sort of... Uh, super ego version of making things up as opposed to the more id-based version of making things <laughs> up that happens in in improv. You guys are clinical psychologists. Yes. Yeah, that id ego. Did I get that right? That sounds right to me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a very nice balance. I, I like that. Well, and thanks for being open to field my questions, no matter where they come from, um, from stream of consciousness. So, you know, of all the research you've conducted, you have a favorite study that you've been a part of. Isn't that like picking your favorite child? Like something you're <laughs> not supposed to... I don't know. I only have one child, so um, she's always my favorite. Uh, yeah, I, I think um, it may be purely for nostalgia, um, but my first year project as a graduate student honestly remains one of my favorite studies I've ever done uh, because the results that we got came out in a way that meant everything was way more complicated than the way people were had been sort of framing things and I found that really exciting and fun so my um this project was looking at argument structure acquisition how children understand the relationship between a verb and the structure of a sentence and um it was using made up words to control for uh prior experience and specifically um we were looking at uh describing events where objects are transferred between two entities. And in English, we have two structures that can be used to describe such events. So we can either say something like, Mary gave the book to John, or we can say, Mary gave John the book. And those approximate the same meaning. Some people argue there are slight differences between the two, but more or less, they can just, they can be used to describe the same event. Um, And what I was looking at was when children know that there's a relationship between those two forms, that a verb that gets used in one can be used in the other. And uh, so I had three-year-olds involved in this study. So I was teaching made-up verbs of this type to three-year-olds in these sort of settings with stuffed animals and little Lego machines, which was so much fun. (laughs) And then this was like, I get to do this? Really? And then I'm going to write a paper? Like, that's my job is to do this and then write a paper that's that's awesome uh, i actually still have that uh, sometimes I'm like, this is my job this is so much fun um that's the best it is <laughs> and uh so what we found was that it depended on which kind of sentence you use the word in first whether the child would extend it to the other one. So it wasn't a symmetric relationship. And I had predicted a symmetric relationship. I think most people would have predicted a symmetric relationship. And then we looked more closely at that asymmetric relationship, and we found that not only was it asymmetric, it was asymmetric in more or less the opposite way you would predict given things like the frequency with which a particular meaning occurred. And uh, that was so exciting to me because... It took something I thought was going to be a very simple, oh, we'll, we'll 
demonstrate how this happens and turned it into oh wait there's a lot going on here this has been oversimplified in this way that has kind of removed some of the interesting uh, pieces from it and that finding out oh no the world is more complex than that you know I think a lot of us as researchers life is certainly easier when you get the tidy story but it's so much more fun when something interesting is going on or at least it's fun later when you're actually getting something completely different from what you expect that can be kind of frustrating but uh, if it opens up new questions and opens up new ideas about how things might work I think that can be a load yeah I, I agree I think that's one of the really exciting even though like you said having the a priori hypotheses supported is great although of course that doesn't happen a lot of the time but particularly when it comes out in an interesting way that leads to new discovery I think there is I have this tendency too. I want to oversimplify understanding things. It's clear that language is not one of those things that is simple. There are just numerous questions that one could uncover about them. And, and it's, to me, it's simple for a lot of people to use language. And so the idea that what is going on behind the scenes is actually more complex than that, I think is really interesting. We have a tremendous amount of implicit knowledge about language. And actually one of the most fun things about teaching students about language is revealing to them all of these things that they know, but that they didn't know they knew. That's always fun. Yeah, that's, that's really great. I, th to see those, like, I don't want to sound like Oprah because I'm no Oprah, but aha moments or something in class. Is that an Oprah phrase? She said, she, didn't she say like aha moments? Not, I mean, it probably predates her, but she said it, I think. Hey, channel your inner Oprah yeah. all the it. time. <laughs> so, yeah, I agree. That is one of the fun things about teaching when you can do that. Uh, sure. So uh, one thing, of course, that we talk about on the show is how do you, uh, how accurate are fictional depictions of some of these psychological constructs? So one thing that we were curious about was for you uh, and your expertise in language, either like when you, so there are certain shows, and I think we're going to dive into some of these that or movies or fictional universes that have fictional languages in addition to that. And also when there are maybe portrayals of a specific accent or a dialect, uh, are there moments where you find yourself cringing a little bit or, or how do you usually respond to situations like that? Uh, like I said, I am, at least from an accent dialect authenticity standpoint, I'm not a sociolinguist. And so honestly, a lot of it, I don't even really notice. Sure. Um, certainly I have friends who are sociolinguists and they can just pull things apart for you. You know, you'll say, oh, I saw that. And they'd be like, yeah, but this person's accent bugged me the whole time. Um, occasionally I'll notice things uh, where, where it is like, well, wait a minute, if you're in Georgia, that is not <laughs> how you're going to sound. Right. Or um, I mean, that that's one. or, you know, the, the range of quality of accents uh, and, and dialect attempts um, in, you know, for example, the New, New England, New York corridor, um, because it is so diverse there, uh, it, it there are definitely times where it's like, oh, you know, you're trying, but you're not quite <laughs> there. Um, and that one, just because I lived there for so long, I'm more familiar with it. Um, and so I can, I can tell when it deviates. Most of the time, that kind of thing uh, doesn't, doesn't really bother me so much, but I do know people who 
who have their issues with it. Um, I think in, you know, other domains, though, um, you do see language used a lot to indicate, and this, this happens in movies and things like that as well, uh, to indicate things like um, education level oh. of uh, a character. Um, and a, a lot of times that will rub me the wrong way because it is um, essentially equating dialect diversity with socioeconomic factors that that's not, not mm-hmm. necessarily equated with, right? And uh, so, you know, things like a, a sort of... Um, well, to use an offensive term to describe it, like a redneck accent, mm-hmm. for example, to indicate that someone is uh, mm-hmm. uh, has a lower educational background. I mean, you know, dialect is something that you pick up from the time you are born and you pick up the one you are growing up in. And so it's not necessarily associated with eventual adult outcomes like educational status. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, you, you sometimes see people who... Uh, come from backgrounds where there is a low status accent associated um, with that background who are trying to deliberately change the dialect that they use to be, to be higher status. Um, you see that in the U.S. It is particularly the case in um, the U.K. Uh, where uh, sort of uh, social class is very much tied to accents. So there are certain dialects... Um, in within uh, Great Britain that are very much perceived as um, sort of lower status dialects. And, and you will encounter people, very, you know, terribly, terribly smart people um, with amazing educational backgrounds who will tell you about being slighted for the dialect they speak. Um, there is a, it's a nonfiction series, um, sometimes referred to as the Up series, that tracks a group of... Um, British citizens from childhood, the age of seven, all the way up through, uh, they are now in their 60s, right? Uh, so, uh, and they record them every seven years and, and talk to them. And one of the men who is featured in that is from uh, the Yorkshire Dales in North England, which has a very distinctive regional dialect. Uh, and he talks about, he has a degree um in, I believe, chemistry, PhD in chemistry from Oxford. And he talks about having someone, when he first got to Oxford, say to him directly, I don't usually associate intelligence with your accent. Right? And so popular depictions of dialect as denoting uh, social status contribute to that. And that is definitely something that that bugs (laughs) when I see it, uh, is that... Um, you know, certainly it is something that may co-vary with social status, but um, if you get in your head, everyone who sounds like that is, you know, high income, or everyone who sounds like that is low education, or everyone who sounds like that is a bigot, or everyone, you know, those kinds of things, um, you know, that's dangerous. It, it contributes to stereotyping. That That's a great point, and I wonder, even taking a step back at some of the basics that you're talking about, I think people use dialect and accent interchangeably. Do you mind just talking about the definitions of that real quick? Sure. Accent is something that um, usually gets used to refer to uh, the production of the speech sounds themselves, uh, and accent is part of dialect. So dialect is um, any consistent... Well, let me back that up. 
A dialect is essentially a variation within a language, right? And it usually patterns in a group, uh, often by geographic region, but it can also pattern with things like age. It can pattern um, with prior language backgrounds. You know, so you mentioned that you grew up around people who may have spoken Spanish as their first language, but were fluent English speakers. You can see dialect effects of that type as well. So dialect is just about language variation. Um, all languages have dialects. Everyone speaks a dialect. Um, there isn't some sort of pure version of the language that is not a dialect. That's a great point because <laughs> I do. I think there is a tendency to think that there's a right way to say things, mm -hmm. and so that's helpful to think about that. Um, one. But accent is just one piece of a dialect. Okay. Right, and it has to do with that production of sounds. But dialect includes things like what kinds of words you might use in certain circumstances or to describe certain things. It can also include what kinds of um, sentence structures you think are acceptable or not acceptable. Um, so there's there's definitely a, a plethora of features that contribute to dialect and accent is just one of them. Okay, thank you. That helped to clarify. I didn't have the definitions quite right after you explained that, I realized. So um, that helped me a lot, too, to understand it. So one question I have, and this is maybe not the same as the question that we just asked, but so I, I know you saw Wonder Woman. And I have not verified this, but rumor is that because Gal Gadot could not speak in a different way than what was natural to her being from Israel, that the other Amazons imitated her language. Um, and so one thing which I found interesting, plus they all learn a whole bunch of languages, which I find very interesting. Now, Chris Pine plays a British soldier spy, right? That it, But he has an Amer he sounds like an American, he has an American dialect. Although when he's pretending to be German, he has, like, he he affects a German dialect. So <laughs> does that kind of stuff affect you at all, or is it just, like, that's just how movies are <laughs> at this point? In some ways, it's kind of that's that's just how okay. movies are. And, uh, you know, people will, will sometimes make certain kinds of decisions. Uh, in a lot of cases, allowing an actor to just use their native accent... Um, avoid some of these issues of sort of the bad attempt mm -hmm. at a non-native accent, or a, not a non-native accent, but an accent other than the one they grew up with, um, or one that they speak fluently. Uh, and so, you know, in some ways, I think that's kind of preferable. It does occasionally lead to somewhat jarring moments. So um, in uh, the most recent Star Wars movie, um, The Force Awakens, there's a scene where Han Solo encounters uh, a, a another um, sort of I'll call them space smuggler. I suppose is that his title? That sounds that good. <laughs> yeah. um, he so he and the actor playing him has an incredibly strong Scottish accent. And it was, it was a real, like, what kind of moment for me watching the movie because, you know, it, it was otherwise, um, you know, sort of these more uh, commonly heard and maybe a little more sort of standardized productions um, that people were using. And then all of a sudden, here is this really strong <laughs> Scottish accent. And it was great. Um, I, I love that accent. But there was definitely a moment of, what, what, 
where, why is this the only Scottish guy in the whole empire? Like, where did he come from? <laughs> right? Nobody else sounds like that here. Uh, so, so there was definitely a moment for me of, oh, hold, hold on. <laughs> that's great. I didn't even notice that. So <laughs> that, that, that's really cool. Well, when I rewatch it, I'm going to have to pay attention to that a little more. Or at least I didn't re- remember it. So, um, so it sounds like, like, uh, like you're like most of the rest of us, with some exceptions, when watching these kinds of things that you can, you're not sitting there, though you know some people that do that, and you're not kind of looking at a super critical eye with those things. But there is a lot of variability within fictional language, it sounds like, and the effort that's put into them. And one thing that I was interested in learning more about is how, for example, Star Trek or Star Wars, how they approach languages, how good you think their approach is, <laughs> to use a very non-technical word, and and just kind of the contrast between those two. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess that's kind of moving out of this range of accent and dialect yeah. uh, and, and into this issue of the fictional language. Um, fictional languages are really cool, uh, and if you want to go back, um, we, we have to, I mean, I, I feel like I am not even like, allowed by law to talk about fictional languages without giving a shout-out to Tolkien, because um, his work on the Elvish languages that he invented very much is is really extraordinary. Um, and he spent more time developing those languages than he did writing the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, he, and he was a linguist. I mean, that was, that was his background, and that was what he was uh, really excited about. And uh, so he put a tremendous amount of work into constructing languages that was based on his expertise and his experience with um, the languages of British Isles. Um, so had to shout out to Tolkien on our way past getting to Star Wars and, oh, and yeah, Star Trek. Oh, no, yeah, that and... was an omission. I'm glad you brought that up. That's really important. <laughs> I think Brandon was seething with resentment. Uh, it's true, I was. I was very close to quitting the podcast. And one thing I, I guess maybe I'm not familiar with, and I don't know if this translates into the, the films, Certainly, he is. Did they? Is it a verbal language as well? Because I know it's he has written it all, but does, is it all uh, verbal as well? Do you know? Um, yeah, it, it's that's a great question. Sure. Uh, you can produce Elvish, sure, um, and there are at least two different forms of Elvish. There's a high dialect of Elvish and a low dialect of Elvish because you know Tolkien and mm-hmm. Great Britain and very concerned with that whole uh, social class being sure. denoted by. Uh, by your particular language use. Um, he himself did not speak the language for anyone. Okay. Uh, and he went through and had an incredible volume of notes um, regarding the structure of Elvish, the vocabulary, the phonology, you know, the sound structure of the language. Uh, but he never really synthesized it into a single uh, sort of document. Um they were much more notes for his purpose uh, in um, writing the books and also just sort of entertaining himself with learning this language. And um, there have been multiple projects to take those notes and actually work them up into something like a primer for okay. the languages. Uh, and, and so those, those do exist now. But no, in terms of actually speaking it, that wasn't really something he did. Okay. Um, language constructors are a they're fun. Language constructors are a fun group of people. Um, and there have been constructed languages for a very long time. Uh, you know, people sitting down and saying from whole cloth, I'm going to invent my own language. 
and I'm going to write all the rules of the language, how the sounds work in the language, make up the whole vocabulary, make up the sentence structure. And it's been done for a lot of different reasons uh, throughout history. Uh, some people do it because they are um, idealists who believe that if we all just spoke the same language, we might understand one another better, mm. and that would reduce conflict. Uh, whether that's actually true, I don't know, because there's certainly plenty of conflict among people who already all yes, speak the same language. Um, but, you know, then we're looking at, at cases like um, Esperanto, which was invented by Zamenhof uh, in the 1800s. For that purpose, it would be a universal language of peace. It comes from the Latin root for hope, right? The idea that maybe if we all spoke the same language, then we'd all hmm. all get along. Um, I love that idea. Mm -hmm. Isn't it a great it idea? Uh, and so, you know, that's a very high-minded reason to invent a language. Sure. Uh, and then, you know, Tolkien, it's fun to invent a language, mm. right? And and to play with that. And, uh, and then it also becomes a piece of world building. Uh, if you're looking in science fiction and if you're looking in fantasy, you know, one thing that gives authenticity to a fictional world is that they speak a language they're different from the one that we speak in our world or in our time period. Um, and so those are uh, some of the reasons that people go about constructors. And, uh, but different creators take different approaches. Um, you know, Tolkien went to the trouble of articulating an entire language uh, and other creators will essentially invent a few words here and there yeah. right um and that has a history in uh not just fantasy and science fiction you know but then you look at uh, things like some of the dystopian novels where you know orwell is very concerned uh, in 1984, the idea of controlling the, the specific words that people use, inventing new words to get rid of certain ideas. Um, and then from there, uh, you see things like Star Trek um, and Star Wars, but we'll Star Trek, uh, having languages to essentially characterize a group, right? There's a group of uh, creatures in this world who are different from humans and therefore they're going to use a different um, and then in the Star Wars world you see some of those same patterns that well you know you have all of these species living on all of these different planets it would be ridiculous if they all spoke the same and so you start to see some of those kinds of things uh, and that tradition continues people are inventing languages all the time for their world building purposes um, and it is, uh, it is interesting to see what people will highlight and not highlight, um, and what choices they make in implementing, uh, language, a novel language to, uh, differentiate a group or to construct it. And do, so you mentioned sometimes it's just finding certain words so that they're kind of doing the minimum to show that it may, it wouldn't make sense if everyone was speaking the same language. And other times, like you said, Tolkien is on the other end who just is really getting into all the details of all of the language and then drawing the dialogue from that are, what are the main motivations? I mean, it clearly one involves a lot more effort, but, <laughs> but are there other things, factors involved in that? Uh, I can't necessarily speak to that in terms of the creative perspective. Mm -hmm. I do think there's something to be said about the scale at which the language is going if you take even an hour of your day 
and record yourself and see just how many, I mean, we are taking an hour of our day yes. recording ourselves, uh, you know, and see just how many different words use and how many different ways they go together and how many different sounds are in those words and how those sounds are allowed to go together. You're going to find out very, very quickly that inventing a full language is a tremendous amount of work. If you are using that language for eight lines of dialogue in a 90 minute movie might not be so worth it. If you are using it for um, eight lines of dialogue recurrently in a television series that lasts for many years or for entire scenes between people in a television series that lasts for many years, it might be worth putting the effort in to at least make sure uh, it's going to be somewhat consistent uh, across usages, especially in domains where uh, the people who might consume that media are likely to be enthusiasts and really go after certain elements of culture. So, you know, fandom um, is an amazing place and people will get really excited about uh, different aspects of any fictional world. And so it's not surprising that someone who, you know, really identifies with an individual or group um, that uses a different language might want to learn about that language, right? Or even learn the language itself. And that is going to be uh, something where if you only did eight lines of dialogue for your 90 minute movie, right. there's nothing there to sink your teeth into. Um, and one of two things is likely to happen. Either it will um, just sort of not be picked up by anyone or, and this is sort of the other possibility, the fans will grab hold of it and invent their own because... Oh. Um, you know, that is certainly something fleshing out a language from the bits that get used. That's also something that, that can happen. Yeah. Fans are wonderful. They get excited about stuff, then they run with it. That's, that's certainly true. So with Star Wars, I noticed even some of the, the theories based on who, um, who are raised parents. Like a lot of people are trying to connect it to the different dialects that are spoken by different characters. And so I don't know how much of that is a lot of speculation, but kind of, you know, you mentioned a series like Star Trek, for example, versus Star Wars, where it's there. A huge part of Star Wars is not hearing the other language, right? That is that um, part of why the languages in Star Trek seem to be, would you speculate are be more developed than compared to Star Wars. Yeah, I would speculate that that's the case. What Star Wars has done in a lot of cases, though not all cases, um, but some of the language in Star Wars that is not English, um, and it should be said it's not English in Star Wars, it is a language called Basic, um, that supposedly all uh, residents of the Empire speak. So like um, common in Dungeons and Sure. Okay. <laughs> I don't. I don't play D and D. So, but I'll accept that. Okay. Um, yeah. So the, you know, you've noticed in Star Wars that people from everywhere appear to be able to talk to each other, right? And you're talking about people who grew up on like different planets. So the idea that they would speak a common language, given that we don't even speak a common language with like neighboring countries, is a little implausible, mm -hmm. right? So instead, there is this sort of universal language in the Star Wars universe that is called basic and is, appears to be universally understood. Um, this is, you know, obviously in the movies not articulated, but it appears to be generally understood. People speak in it and understand each other just fine. Um, unless, and this is perhaps why, one of the reasons why Star Wars doesn't have uh, sort of fully articulated and formalized 
constructed languages in it, unless it is a character whose vocal tract is not capable of producing bass. Um, and so, you know, Ewoks, Huts, mm-hmm. Wookiees, um, Jawas, uh, you know, you start looking at those other creatures and yeah, I just sort of buy that Jabba the Hutt's vocal tract for some <laughs> reason prohibits his production of basic. Um, and what they, so what they did instead in uh, those movies was one of two things. Either they used literally just gibberish, right? So just like a series of nonsense syllables um, and uh, that's, you know, and that's for very short chunks of dialogue. Um, the other thing that is used in some of the Star Wars movies are languages that are unlikely to be spoken by the target audience. Oh, interesting. Um, so there are uh, a few words of a Mayan language in one of the Star Wars movies. Um, in, I think it's Attack of the Clones. I don't know, I kind of blocked out the prequels. <laughs> <laughs> just true confessions here. Um, I like to pretend those never happen. I think it's Attack of the Clones that there's some Finnish. Um, right, so so languages that sound very dissimilar from English, very dissimilar from basic, that are unlikely to be familiar to viewers of those films, um, or widely known sort of globally, uh, that will get used um, as well. So, and there is also in The Force Awakens, there's a scene, and people were debating what the language is that is used. Um, the, when the pirates board the ship uh, with Han Solo, and there's the big creature, you know the scene, it's great. But they are speaking a language among themselves that is not basic, um, which is sort of a violation of the pattern in Star mm-hmm. Wars, because everyone who is human appears to speak basic, right? But they are not. They're speaking another language amongst themselves. And when the movie first came out, people were like, wait, what is that language? Is It It sounds maybe like it's Indonesian, maybe like it's a Malay language. Um, it turns out not to be either, <laughs> unless it is a very um, not well-known dialect, but it, it is close to Indonesian. Oh. Um, so it is, uh, it's sort of like gibberish Indonesian is my oh. understanding, but it, it's not, again, my understanding, I don't speak Indonesian, so I can't really mm. say too much about it. But it's my understanding it's not sort of standard Indian. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, so, so Star Wars does some of that. So either sort of gibberish, um, like the Ewok. It is Sorry, adorable. It is adorable. <laughs> um, or, you know, using words and phrases or even sentences from less familiar languages or languages that would be less familiar to, say, a U.S. or, or English-speaking audience. Star Trek um, did not as far as we know, intend to go out of its way to invent a language, but it happened. Um, the Klingon character, Worf, um, who is actually named for the linguist Benjamin Lee Worf, um, who was a uh, linguistic anthropologist um, in the 1800s. Or so. um, Worf uses a few words of the Klingon language of and this is a case where people really kind of took it a bit. And eventually an official version of Klingon was constructed. Um, and it is uh, based, you know, on some existing languages, uh, but it is also based on um, sort of the culture of the uh, So it is this very, I'm putting scare quotes around this, uh, very sort of um, harsh sounding language. The Klingon greeting is translated as, what do you want? (laughs) Right? And so that's sort of trying to incorporate into the language, not just this 
um, sort of auditory quality of, oh, it sounds really harsh, but also this abruptness that characterizes the Klingon culture. That, that's interesting, and it reminds me a little mm-hmm. bit of Dothraki, too, which, if I'm remembering right, in the universe, at least, I think when they're translating it, they say, like, there's no word for thank you or something like that, which kind of matches the kind of interesting that how the sort of underlying cultural values play a role in that these fictional languages are put together mm-hmm. yeah and that's that's based on um like i said sort of some layperson assumptions mm-hmm. about how language intersects with thought that aren't necessarily empirically mm-hmm. borne out so the the no word for x trope is sure. something that linguists like to talk about a lot right you'll definitely see you know oh there's no word for whatever in Russian, or there's no mm-hmm. word for whatever in French, um, or, oh, the Germans have all these words we don't have. Right? That's there's, what I was going to ask you about. The German, is that the German word for everything is like the other <laughs> side of that, right? Right. <laughs> right. And Germans are somehow sort of more cognitively flexible because <laughs> they can uh, put words together in these fun ways to create new words. I don't, you know, but you, you have this idea that it's really sort of deeply affecting the things you're able to think hmm. about. Um, and it's associated with a hypothesis, sometimes called the Worfian hypothesis, after the linguist, not after the Klingon. <laughs> The clarification. <laughs> Just want to make sure we're on the same page about that. Um, the, the language you speak and the words you have access to um, essentially act as boundaries for your thoughts. Um, the learning piece of that doesn't make a ton of sense, though, because a newborn baby doesn't have any words. But they do have mm-hmm. concepts, right? Um, and in fact, they need to link those words or they, they link those concepts up to words, right? Uh, and so if you can't have a concept without having a word for it, it's not clear how you ever learn the word in the first place. Uh, so it, it, there are definitely some gaps in that theory. Um, but there, there are also some demonstrations that things like relatively minor effects, like you know the words you use for particular colors may shift the boundary, the, where you perceive boundaries to be between two colors. Um, So it doesn't mean you can't see the colors at all. It just means that what one language calls blue, another language called green, and that it just shifts around a little bit how well you can discriminate between uh, colors that are right on that bound. Can you tell differences between the extreme cases, regardless of the language you speak? Yes, but maybe some that are right next to each other. You might have received different information about which constitutes color based on the language. Huh. That's a really... uh great example, I think, in, in psych, you know, in psychology, of course, a lot of what we do is we're trying to work with constructs that aren't seen, and part of it is just defining what they are, and it does have some effect on boundaries, but as you're saying, it doesn't mean that we can't perceive something, but it does affect how we study it and how we use it and, and things like that, so it's interesting to hear about, I don't think about language tropes, probably, because I don't no, they're false, <laughs> or some of the myths, I guess, um, surrounding that. So that that idea that color boundaries would be affected by language is a really concrete example for someone not in the area like me <laughs> to understand that. So that's really cool. So speaking of Game of Thrones, which I admit, I know that this is unusual. I have not seen it. <laughs> I have not read it. I have either. Okay. Well, then, Brandon, you're the expert because you've read all the books. Yep. And you've seen it. Not the whole show. I quit watching the show. Oh. Yeah, so I'm a little unusual, too. And, and Yeah, I, so the, it's probably, like, among my favorite series of books. And it was weird because I read 
well, not to be this gen, but I did read the books before the show came out. <laughs> and, oh. uh, and when the show started, I thought it was awesome, and I thought it followed the books very well. And then, like, midway through the third season, I had a sort of epiphany where I realized the show is going to get ahead of the books if they keep going at this rate, and George R. R. Man keeps going at his rate. And so, like, I just, like, turned it off right there. I was like, I don't want the story to be spoiled for me. Which, of course, uh, through social media, it has been completely spoiled. Oh. <laughs> so I may as well just watch the show. But, yes, I do like Game of Thrones. Okay, so Dothraki, which I don't know anything about mm-hmm. other than that it's popular. But it's so popular that apparently Duolingo, which is an app for learning languages, I've used it before to refresh my Spanish. It's, it's a fun app. I don't know how effective it is, but... It is fun. Um, <laughs> at least I've enjoyed it. <laughs> that they have Dothraki included in that, so it seems like, again, this kind of fandom mm-hmm. effect by it. And what's the backstory, or what can you tell us about how that language was developed? So Dothraki is a case um, where that is not a fan development oh. uh, in the sense of the fans constructing a language. Um, Dothraki was constructed by a linguist, uh, and specifically by someone who constructs languages both for fun and profit. Um, His last name is Leif Peterson, and he has a really great book about language construction called The Art of Language Invention. Um, And it is a a really fun look at all of the things you need to do if you're going to invent language. He sort of steps through uh, his work on the languages in Game of Thrones. Um, and it, he has worked not just on Dothraki, which is the most f- sort of fully fleshed out one, but on some of the other languages used in that series. Um, so I actually know nothing about Game of Thrones. I have not read the books. I have not watched any of the television show. Um, so the only things I know about it are about Dothraki <laughs> and that there are dragons. I know there are dragons. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so the two things I know. Uh, but yeah, so that that's a case where, you know, the um, he worked you know, with the show producers and with other um, artists involved in uh, the show and with the man, George Martin, with the books uh, to uh, say, well, what is the sort of vision of this language and how does it, um, how would it play out? Um, You know, there are critiques of it and how scientifically uh, things like changes in the language worked and, and, and that sort of thing. You know, would you really have seen this pattern if the contact between these two groups happened at this time? But uh, again, I'm going to punt on that one because I'm not a historical linguist. That's not my background, so I can't really comment all that intelligently on language change of that type. Um, but it is something that they thought about a lot, was uh, you know, sort of how the interaction of different groups um, affects language. and affects. Thank you for answering all of our questions. We've covered a lot of material. I do have, before we go into, we'd like to conclude our, our guest episodes with some kind of quick fire questions to learn about you but i we did get one question on twitter that i wanted to ask you about this is from our pal murray um who is in scotland Mm -hmm. speaking of scottish um but hi murray love your accent (laughs) (laughs) which i've never actually heard because i've only read him but um (laughs) but he says what are some of the thoughts on the importance of language there's an interesting novel solaris by stanislaw lem which hopefully i pronounced correctly about the inability to communicate with other species and how that language barrier creates problems any thoughts about that yeah that's um you know that's something that also comes up when you're looking at science fiction uh comes up a lot is the idea of communicating with non Terran, I guess, <laughs> species. Um, there was a, a movie came out 
last December or last November of one or was nominated for some Academy Awards uh, called Arrival, right? Based on um, Ted Chiang's incredible science fiction short story, uh, Story of Your Life, um, which I would recommend to anyone. It was a phenomenal short story, uh, possibly one of the best short stories I've ever read, and then a, a very, very good movie adaptation. Um, and I'm not just saying that because I'm really biased because the main character was a linguist, and that <laughs> never happens. Um, usually the linguist is a walk-on role. Yeah. They, they sure. show up with like a sheaf of papers, and they're like, we've finished the translation, sir. Um, and in this, uh, Amy Adams plays a, a linguist who is tasked with communicating with an alien species. And that alien species... Um, you know, the movie could have spent more time on the language, I think, personally. That's me. I'm always biased in that way, though. Uh, but the, the short story treats uh, it in a kind of interesting way. Um, you know, one of the challenges that they face is that these creatures don't speak, right? Um, they sort of present these visual symbols. And so not only do they need to overcome the barrier you would have if you were encountering a human language that you had never encountered before, right? So where you need to establish some common ground in vocabulary and that sort of thing, there's also a complete difference in modality, right? So they're presenting these visual uh, symbols and um, the humans are using words written on cards uh, to communicate. She has a whiteboard. Uh, and, and what's really delightful about it is that, you know, they do use this method that's used by anthropological linguists hmm. to uh, go and, and try and communicate with someone where there is no common ground. Um, what gets a little lost in the movie is that um, the structure of the language that is being used by uh, the aliens is completely different from the structure of any language we yeah. would use. Um, it, it is completely divorced from uh, the way human languages work, uh, and not completely, but there are a lot of very major structural differences. And, um, you know, both the short story and, and the movie, uh, you know, we, we are able to overcome the barrier and communicate using it anyway, um, uh, communicate across that language divide. But there, there is a, a very real question of if there are non-terrestrial life forms, whether they have a communication system that we would even recognize as much. That's a really, I mean, obviously, we don't even know if there are extraterrestrial life forms, but the assumption that they would have, say, a vocal tract that is in any way capable of producing something we would recognize as speech, that's a long shot, mm -hmm. right? Um, because presumably they were subject to different evolutionary pressures than we have on Earth. Um, and that's going to lead to different outcomes in terms of just the physiology alone. Um, and then there's the cognitive capacity associated with a language um, or any communication system. Um, whether the structures would be the same, whether we would even be able to recognize from one another the intent. Uh, and all of those are things that sort of get glossed over in the science fiction mm -hmm. world a lot of the time. We meet a lot of creatures that either use a written system we can interpret or a vocal system we can interpret or recognize what we do when we speak as a form of communication. And, you know, that's not an assumption 
that would necessarily hold in the event that we made contact with extraterrestrial life. Um, and so that would be uh, definitely something that, I mean, the linguists are standing by, you know, we're, we're, we're ready mm -hmm. for when we're called, just like Amy Adams was. <laughs> we will good to know. <laughs> get on the plane. If Jeremy Renner could be on the plane, that would be really <laughs> great for us. <laughs> None of us look like Amy Adams either, but, you know, <laughs> glossing over a few, a few of the inaccuracies there. Um, but, you know, I, I think uh, encountering a new language is something that's exciting. Encountering a communication system that was completely different from what we recognize as language, um, that would definitely be an area of major controversy, major study. Um, Solaris itself, I can't say I've read it, um, so I can't talk directly about that particular case, but is uh, that's something that I think science fiction has not necessarily gone past the first layer of. Mm -hmm. You know, you sort of stop at, oh, we would meet them and they would definitely have a different language. Like, well, they might have something totally different mm -hmm. um, that we would have to figure out. And uh, that would be, you know, the possibilities there are pretty much endless. Wow. That's, that's great. Thank you for answering that question. Sure. Uh um, Oh, so we'll start off with our five uh, sort of quickfire questions, if that sounds good. Uh, so our first one, favorite fictional book? I don't have one. Uh, <laughs> that's okay. Sorry. No, uh, that's so right. I will give two answers to that. Um, the first one is Anne of Green Gables, um, which is just lifetime favorite book. Uh, the second is the most recent one I've ever read um, <laughs> that I really enjoyed. And I just finished the second book in Sherry Thomas's The Lady Sherlock series. Um, it, the book is called A Conspiracy in Belgravia. The first book was called A Study in Scarlet Women, which is such a great title. Um, and it reimagines Sherlock Holmes as a woman. And oh. it is fantastic, and I'm recommending it to everyone I see. It is great. That sounds a huge Sherlock fan. Yeah, they're really good. That sounds great. Uh, second one, favorite movie? Uh, favorite is a strong word. <laughs> it is. I am going to go with... I'm going to go with the Muppet movie. I love that. <laughs> it's a good one. I could watch that anytime. It's so good. How about favorite, a favorite, or a TV show you like? <laughs> um, I have actually, maybe the Muppet movie is to mind, because I've been watching a lot of the old Muppet show, oh, the one that came great. out in the 70s and 80s. Um, and that... Again, I could watch it anytime. It is just so much fun. It is. I, I have the I have the first season of that, and it's really fun to go back and watch that. How about favorite fictional character? Is it Kermit? It's not Kermit. <laughs> okay. Um, I think it is. It is actually a tie for me. I'm very Muppet centric, uh, apparently, <laughs> in my life right now. Um, between Miss Piggy. Uh, She's good. And it's a tie because she is tied with Princess Leia. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I have to say it's a tie because they are like the feminist icons of my childhood, you know? Um, strong women, both of them, different approaches. <laughs> that, that is true. Very different approaches. <laughs> uh, but, but both of them, uh, you know, real sort of symbols of empowerment for me. Love it. How about the final question? What is your favorite language? I have been trying to learn the Irish language um, for heritage reasons, uh, and it is so great. Um, it's really hard to learn. It is, it is so different from English, uh, and it has just this sort of uh, wonderful 
set of qualities to it that make it different. And so I'm really enjoying that. Um, and it's beautiful to hear spoken. Uh, and I hope someday I'm actually able to. That'd be great. Right now I'm an individual word. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Erin, for joining us today. This has been one of my favorite episodes. I've learned a lot, even though I've asked you about this stuff before. <laughs> I like hearing about it more in depth, and I also sometimes forget things. But this is, I mean, I really, the the level of appreciation, I actually want to, I'm more motivated to go back and watch more Star Trek now that I understand all that's gone into it. And I certainly understand Star Wars better for all the times mm. that I've watched that. So, Thank you so much for your time and for explaining it to us. I think we'll wrap up today's episode there. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, just uh, mere Katie's thoughts, and thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I've had a lot of fun. Absolutely. Great. And uh, thanks, everyone, who took the time to listen in, and you'll hear from us next week. <laughs>